truly is a joy to be with you today to preach God's word with you. Uh, Again, as Rick said, my name is Dan Anderson, and it is a great privilege of mine um, to give thanks to you for your gifts, not only to my wife and I as we labor in Little Rock, but also to the people in Little Rock who we've had the chance to minister to. So thank you. What a treat it is for me to come and preach God's word. Uh, We're going to just jump into the book of Luke. Um, we're going to look at Luke verse, or chapter 15, verses 11, all the way through the end of the chapter. Let me just say a word to the children, though, that are left remaining. I know some kids go out. Uh, one of the things that I like to do with the kids that stay in the service and listen to the sermons is I like to, well, we do a lot with them in the sermon, but one of the things that I ask them to do is listen for a particular word and just jot down how many times that I say this particular word helps them stay attuned to what I'm saying. And so kids, if you're listening to me right now and you have a, a pen, there's a lot of pens in your pews and things like that, I want you to tally the number of times I say repentance, repentance. Now, likely you probably have no clue what that word is, but hopefully by the end of this sermon, you have some clue. But I just want you to tell, all I'm asking for you to do, kids, is to jot down the number of times I say repentance. How many times have I already said it? Anyone? See, you're already behind, okay? Everyone else, we're going to turn our attention to God's word, Luke chapter 15. I'm going to be reading 11 through the end of the chapter. Before we read, though, let me remind you that this is told in the context of of sinners and tax collectors, as well as Pharisees and scribes. Jesus has already told them two stories, and this is the third story in a parable that he tells to the crowd that has gathered around him, Luke 15, 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into this field to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. 
And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I'll never forget the day that I learned of the spark that lit the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. One of my seminary professors at Reformed Theological Seminary looked out under the class and sarcastically said to us, do you love the Reformation? Now there are 30 or so men and women in the class. Some of these men and women would go on to the greatest academic institutions in all of the world, studying the Westminster Divines, studying the Great Reformation. And he says, do you like, name me some of the reformers you love. And in the class you hear, oh, Calvin. Oh, you love Calvin. Oh, yes, yes, Calvin. What did Calvin do? Oh, you know, he wrote the Institutes and he started the church in Switzerland. Oh, that's great, great, great. Okay, name me another reformer. Swingley. Oh, yes, Swingley. What a great reformer. We love Swingley, even though he's got a weird view of the supper. That's okay. Well, he's great. He was helpful. Name me another one. Someone said, Luther. Oh, Luther. We love Luther, right? Why do we love Luther? Someone yelled, oh, the 95 Theses. Oh, the 95 Theses. And he looked at us, these great reformed minds eager to learn. And he says, can anyone name me one Theses? I won't challenge you, don't worry, I don't want to bring you into shame, but to, to make the story short, we sat there in utter silence. I mean, we all know the story of the 95 Theses. It's the spark that began Luther going to the Diet of Worms and him being charged and him saying, upon this word I will stand, and all the things the rest of history calls, but what was it about? What was it even about? What did he want to dietary with the the church on? Does anyone know? And this is what the professor says. I'm just going to read you one. In fact, I'm just going to read you the first one. And he opened whatever his notebook, and he said this. Here's the first one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, when Luther looked at the church of his time and he looked at the scripture, which he had, the thing that he saw was that the church had become overly political in its theology and this had bled into its understanding of repentance. What he saw was that their understanding of repentance as many of us know that it was seen in in the way that they, they, they would pay to get their sins, you know, getting rid of, all this stuff. He saw this and he said, this is not with scripture. And I just want to have a talk about what repentance is about. They didn't want it, they kicked him out. But here's what I want you to see. The spark that lit the Protestant Reformation revolved around one word, repentance. The reason you are sitting in these pews and not the pews across the street, which is the Catholic Church, is because of this one word, repentance. And if you get this word wrong, it's almost like everything changes, does it not? 
And I wish I could say to you that as, as, as a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, that as I look at even my congregation and other congregations, I wish I could say to you, oh, we've got it down. We've got repentance perfect. We do exactly what Luther wants us to do, that our entire life is one of repentance. But church, it is not. Yes, I do believe the PCA has the technical term down and the technical definition of repentance down, but it hasn't moved from the head and to the heart. You want to know how I know this? Who wept in worship today in considering that our sins have been forgiven? (laughs) Whose heart whose heart was just so encouraged that our our Lord is on the throne, ruling and reigning over sin, Satan, and death, whose heart just was overflowing. We all have lukewarm hearts. And yes, I, I, I assume that most of you have the proper understanding of repentance in your heart, but it has yet to fall down into your heart. And maybe this morning, that'll change. Maybe this morning, the same way that Luther sparked the Reformation, the message that I looked, look at, we look at, it's just Jesus' words, sparks a Reformation in your own heart. That indeed, you might see your sin as detestable, our Savior as beautiful. We need a Reformation of repentance, and that is exactly what Jesus gives to us in Luke 15. It's really easy to read this, and I'm going to be critical of the ESV and the way it's written in here. I'm going to be very critical. It's very easy to detach the three stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15 as three separate parables. Friends, it is not three separate parables. It is one parable told in three stories. Look at the, look at the Pew Bible. They get it wrong. It says the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of, uh, of, of the lost sheep. I, I'm sorry, I missed that. Sheep, coin, son. It is one parable. Luke 15, 3. Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees this parable. And there's no stop. These three stories are uniquely tied together. And I'm going to show you that these three stories tell about true repentance. And Jesus' understanding of true repentance. What does Jesus say repentance is? Well, here's here's his parable. Let's look at these three stories and how they interplay. And then we're really going to zero in on the the last story, which is this text that I've been given to preach. But look at the three stories because they're really important to understanding how Jesus is talking about repentance. In this first story, it's a story of a lost sheep. The sheep is lost. And again, this is not a long story, but a a search begins. The sheep is found. And when the sheep is found, what happens? A party breaks out. Cool. Then Jesus concludes the story with this phrase. Very important. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, this is a parable about repentance. The second story the second story is about a lost coin. And this, this story is much like the first. But he uses a coin in this particular case. But like the first story, a search begins to find the coin. And when the coin is found, what happens? A party breaks out. And what does Jesus do right after this? He concludes the story much like the first. 
with a little difference, he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's a story about repentance. Then he tells the third story. And much like the first two stories, something is lost. In this case, it's the younger son who demands his inheritance before his father's dead. And then he goes and spends all his inheritance on that which pleases him. And he ends up eating with the pigs, which is a big Jewish no-no. He's lost. In this third story, something is found. Found. I use air quotes for a reason. I do this because the father in the last says, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He's home. So something is lost in this third story. Something is found. And what comes again? There is a party. When that which is lost is found, a great celebration ensues. And yet, the third story includes a strange omission. And if you haven't picked up, I'm going to tell you what it is. What's the omission? Something was lost. Something is found. A celebration. What's the fourth thing? It's Jesus' teaching about when one sinner repents, there is more joy in heaven. He doesn't include it. So what's the point? He's using this third story to teach the religious leaders who have been critical of Jesus when he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. He's using this third story to teach them about repentance, about true, godly repentance. The Catholic Church got it wrong in the 1500s, and Jesus looks at the the Jews and he's like, you got it wrong here. If they got it wrong then, the Catholic Church got it wrong, what is it about us? We could get it wrong too. You see, what we have in this text is Jesus' teaching on repentance. And if we truly grasp what Jesus says, I'm telling you, it'll spark a reformation in your heart that will bring more joy and life and peace than you can ever imagine. Oh, let's study. What does Jesus teach us about repentance? This story contains what I would say two kind of technical terms of repentance and then one kind of uh, heart issue. But the way that I'm going to describe it, for those of you that like to take notes, here's how I'm going to say it. Repentance, colon, what it is not. Second, repentance, colon, what it is. Third, repentance, colon, why should I do it? This is what we're going to study. Jesus' teaching on this helps us to understand repentance that it might reform our hearts. So first, repentance, what it is not, according to Jesus. In the third story that Jesus tells these Pharisees and tax collectors, or Pharisees and scribes, my pardon, pardon me, we see a depiction of what we typically think of repentance. It's a repentance that looks real, it feels real, but at the end of the day, it's simply counterfeit. You see, in the first two stories that Jesus tells, He uses this word metanoia, or the Greeks and and all the the words off of this word metanoia. And and this word metanoia means a change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. Now this word isn't used in the third story, but when this younger son who's away from his family and his life hits rock bottom, while he's in the pig pen with his face down in the mud, he has a change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. Metanoia. 
Let's look at what he says when he has this. He's down in the pig pen and he, he reasons within himself and he says, how many, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father and I'm gonna say to him three things. If you have a Bible, you can see this. is verse 17. He's gonna say three things. This is what he thinks is, is repentance. He will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. His face is down in the mud, and this is how he thinks I need to change my life so that I can go back to my father. This is how he understands repentance, that he acknowledges sins, that he acknowledges the consequences of his sins, and that he will be willing to pay the debt for the rest of his life. One of the great tragedies of my life in Arkansas is there is no Publix. Okay, I'm just going to be real with you. You guys have no idea how good you have it with the Publix just right down the street. But at Publix, if you bring a crisp, cool $100 bill in there, the new $100 bills look awesome. I mean, they look so cool. And sometimes you'll bring that $100 bill to the cash register at Publix, and that cash register will be like, they'll give you like a double look, like, okay. And they'll go to the little cash register and they'll pull out a pen, won't they? And they'll take the pen, swipe it it right across the $100 bill. Why are they doing that? Because the $100 bill that you've just given them looks real, feels real, smells real, but they're not sure if it's counterfeit or not. They need to know if it's real money. Now, you guys, I know, would never counterfeit money. I know that. But Jesus is doing the same thing in his story. He's taking a pen and he's exposing true and false repentance. He's teaching us what repentance is not in this story. Because the son reasons with himself that I'm going to say these three things to my father. And when he comes to the father, look at verse 20, this is not what he says. The son comes to the father, and when he comes to his father, he begins, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But then, perhaps, the greatest words in all of Luke, but the father. There's an interruption. An interruption that that is downright startling the father says to his servants bring the best robe his ring my shoes get the fattened calf kill it so that we might celebrate it's another omission of jesus that tells us of something really important the third omission of course is the third statement which the son had planned to say to his father which was this treat me as one of your hired servants This blatant and brilliant omission, Jesus exposes counterfeit repentance in the heart of the younger son. And I think it's worth considering the heart of this statement that never gets spoken. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Why does Jesus blatantly omit it in this story? In this statement, the younger son wants to be treated as a slave. This is someone who makes their livelihood by what they do. They belong with their effort, and with their will. And we understand why a younger son would reason this way. 
He had blown his inheritance, all the money that was given to him from his father on what he thought would be right, what he thought would be good. And he has squandered it. And he thinks the only way that I could be brought into this family is if I pay my way. As if I am a slave. As if I put my blood, sweat, and tears. Logically, this is the only thing that makes sense. To belong in the family is now all up to him. And many of us commend such an attitude. But this attitude, when we think of it from a religious perspective, is the same attitude that he had before. And it's the same attitude in this way. It's self-centered. He was self-centered before in an irreligious bent, and now he's self-centered in a religious bent. I'm just going to work for my belonging. What I do puts me into the family. It's absolute and utter self-centeredness. If I may be so easy to to, to kind of explain what his understanding of repentance was in all of these things, it would be this. Repentance is turning from our godlessness to godliness. That sounds good. Godlessness, changing of life, changing of style. Godliness, that's good. That's good. Jesus says it's counterfeit. To go from our godlessness to godliness, it's counterfeit. I think you know how this goes. You sin knowingly or ignorantly and you feel the sense that you have to make amends with God or maybe even in the church before you can belong again. It's difficult. Shame comes up and creeps and begins to help make you sweat and you're like, I can't belong because I've done X, Y, and Z. I need to do X, Y, and Z so that I can belong. Friends, this is not repentance. It is absolute counterfeit repentance. So what do we do when we're tempted to believe that repentance is turning from our godlessness to godliness? Well, simply stop. (laughs) Stop believing that. But secondly, learn. Learn what true repentance is. Repentance, what it is not. It is not godlessness or godly, godlessness to godliness. What is repentance? What is it? Well, Jesus teaches us in this story. What is repentance? Consider again what happened with the younger son after he reasoned with himself in the pig pen and goes to his father. Like I said, he confessed his sin against heaven and against his father. He acknowledges that he's no longer worthy to be called a son, But then he receives the embrace of the father. And he enters into the party that is thrown in his honor. Here we have a clarifying picture of metanoia, of repentance. It is going to God. It is acknowledging your sin before God and others. And it is acknowledging with horror the consequences of your sin. That it puts you out with God. That is true. It's scary. And it should be. But it is then being graciously embraced by God himself. That's it. If I go back to this phrase, turning from our godlessness, what are we turning from? We're turning from our godlessness to God. Repentance is simply this way. Turning from our godlessness and turning to God. 
who is full of mercy and grace. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What did Jesus tell the scribes and the Pharisees? Maybe you don't believe it. I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need more repentance. Do you believe there is joy when you turn from your godlessness to God? You know who this is hard for? You know who this is really hard for? Me. If you're a church member, you. To turn from our godlessness to God requires us to give up in some ways on ourselves. It's not a self-centeredness. That, my friends, is perhaps one of the most difficult things, but that's the reason why I think Jesus tells this story to the scribes and the Pharisees, because they were boasting in themselves, in their religious rights, and what they do. And Jesus is teaching them this story. Now, one of the most unique parts of this story, and I think it's worthy of another sermon in and of itself, is the last part of the third story, when the older brother is standing in the field and he's grumbling with himself when he's looking at the, his brother who's come home and there's this great celebration. Oh, there's a worthy consideration. Why does Jesus tell this in the story? Why is he looking at the, the scribes and the Pharisees who are essentially the young, older brother in the story? Why is he doing this? Because Jesus wants them to repent as well. When Jesus sets his eye on someone, oh, the love of God is being put on them and he hopes that they would repent. But you know why it's so hard? Because we gotta give up on ourselves. Give up on our obedience. Give up on this kingdom that we have established. And that is not easy. The older brother had a hard time doing this. He said to them, look at all the years that I have slaved for you and yet you've never given me one of your goats to celebrate with my friends it's disgusting churches is so hard for us to rest simply in what god says of us not what you say of yourselves not what the church says of you not what your mom says of you not anything but god to turn from our godlessness to god is one of the greatest difficulties in life, to rest our soul in him and him alone, it is a great challenge. But that's what repentance is. True repentance that brings life-transforming power is turning from our godlessness to God. And the question that I want to spend the remaining of my time and not much longer than four or five minutes is on this question, is God merciful and gracious? Do you believe it not here because i know carriage lane believes it here i know that i've been to church here numbers of times and i've heard the grace of god preached beautifully and correctly but do you believe it here why would you turn from your godlessness to this god it's because he is indeed merciful and gracious jesus does this in a beautiful way in this story and i want to show it to you and it is my hope that in seeing the, the absolute incredible way that Jesus writes this story that you go, oh my goodness, he is merciful and gracious. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. Let's look at it. What, this is the third point. Why should we do it? Why should we repent? Why should we turn from our godlessness to God? 
Here's the, th- the third thing. In this story, we find a beautiful example that warrants our trust in God's mercy and grace. If you have any, uh, if you recall the story, the characters in this third story can easily be identified in the setting that Jesus tells the story. The younger brother are the sinners and tax collectors who'd been eating with Jesus. The older brother is the religious leaders criticizing Jesus for eating with these sinners. The father in Jesus' parable is the God, full of mercy, God the Father, full of mercy and grace. But there's one omission from this story, this third story that we see in the first two stories, and there's another omission is where's Jesus? The two are connected. What's the omission from the first two stories, or the thir- in the third story that was in the first two stories? I'll tell you. A search. Something was lost, a search begins, something is found, and then a party. But in this third story, there is no search. Then you ask, where's Jesus in the story? We can identify all the people in this story with characters in this setting, but where is Jesus? The two are connected. The two are connected. Let me tell you something. Culturally speaking, if something like this story that Jesus told ever was to unfold, the oldest male in the family was expected to chase down the younger brother and bring him home. That's understood. Yet in this third story, the older brother stays home just continuing to do what his father tells him to do, but doing it out of self-centeredness. But look at Jesus in real life. What is he doing in verse 1 of chapter 15? What do you think Jesus is doing? He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. He's doing exactly what the older brother was supposed to do. To seek and to save that which is lost. The whole story, Jesus puts himself in it in this strange way, in the real way, that here he is eating with sinners and tax collectors. Do we believe that that Jesus wants to dine with sinners? (laughs) It's right there in the book. Jesus wants to be with sinners. He wants to be with you. And he wants to be with me. He's seeking to save that which is lost. Do you believe it? This idea of Jesus being the older brother is, is, is so profound, especially as you think through the older brother that, that actually takes place in this story. And this is the last thing that I said because I hope more than anything you will, will take delight in our Lord and move towards him in repentance in seeing his mercy and grace. Jesus in this story is the true older brother. But he is the one who pays the cost of the party that comes when one sinner turns from their godlessness and turns to God. He's the one that pays the party. Think back to the story that Jesus tells. The older brother is the one paying paying for the party. You know that, right? Why do you think he's grumbling? Because the robe, the ring, and the shoes, the calf, all of that was his. My man's already got his inheritance. That's mine. And you're going to throw a party in his honor? (laughs) That's mine. But Jesus, the older brother, says this. 
Yeah, it's mine, but have it all. You see, Jesus pays for the party. And he does it with his life. He does it with his death. And he does it with his resurrection. Jesus gladly pays for the party himself so that you, a sinner, might justly be in the presence of a holy God. We have a profound older brother, God the Son, who has paid the party, paid for the party through his own blood. Do you believe that? At RTS, we had to take this exit examination to graduate. And part of the exit examination was to memorize significant portions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I know you guys know that by heart, so no big deal. But I'll never forget when I had to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number 87. (laughs) What is repentance unto life? What is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and then get this, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto godliness? Ah, (laughs) no. Turn from it unto God. When that coin dropped, when I got that in my mind, then it sunk down deep into my heart. I, I, <laughs> the relief that I felt from all the religious hubbub that was around me just melted away. With full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. That's the end of that, that question. We got it right, guys. The PCA has got it right. It aligns with what Jesus says about repentance in Luke 15. And the question for you this morning and in closing is will you make your entire life of repentance? Of turning from your godlessness and turning to God? If you do, I can assure you, you will experience great, great reformation. Let me pray.